Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study, let's make sure that we are properly uh, prepared, spiritually prepared to study the Word of God. Scripture teaches that we're either walking by the Spirit or walking according to the sin nature, either walking in the light or walking in darkness, either abiding in Christ or not abiding in Christ. And the key is that when we stop walking by the Spirit and start walking according to the sin nature that we need to recover. Recovery is based on the simple procedure of trusting, I mean, excuse me, of confessing sin, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father, and at that instant we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to study your word. Your word is the basis for our salvation, understanding who you are, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and that salvation cannot be accomplished through anything that we do, but was accomplished by Christ on the cross. And that all that we are responsible for is to either trust in him or not, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we'll be saved. And once we're saved, then we begin to understand this great plan of salvation that you have for us that includes these three tenses, our present tense of justification, the ongoing sanctification in phase two, and ultimately in phase three, the fact that we have a future uh, glorified body face-to-face with you, free from our sin nature, and that as part of our future, we look forward to the rapture when the Lord Jesus Christ will return in the clouds to receive us unto himself. And now, Father, as we study one of the most significant passages for this this morning, uh, we pray or tonight, whichever, that you will uh, help us to understand these principles. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10. And this is the first time we have a mention of what will come to be a more expanded treatment of the pre-tribulation rapture in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10 functions as the introduction to the uh, main themes, the main ideas that will be developed within the uh, text of 1 Thessalonians within this epistle. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it, we find key terminology, key vocabulary that relates to the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we read that we are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this is a very important verse, and there's some things, though, that we have to pay attention to as we look at this verse. The last phrase is the key one that we're going to look to, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, the word for deliver there is not the word sozo, which sometimes is translated deliver, more often translated save. It's the Greek word ruamai, which has the idea of deliverance or rescue from a physical calamity to rescue from a physical calamity. Now, this is not the most uh, significant or controversial aspect of this verse. It really comes from the next, next phrase, from the wrath to come. So we have to look at this verse because there are more than uh, a couple of problems here. The first thing we have to determine is just what in the world does the Word of God actually say here because there's a textual problem 
uh, in uh, the manuscript tradition. And so we have two different readings in the Greek text. So the first thing we have to do is to t- determine what the best reading from the verse is, and then it's going to, I think, open the door to some things for us. The first thing we see here is uh, that there are two different readings, and the difference is the prepositions. Ek, tase, orges, versus apa, tase, orges. You have two different words, two different prepositions, indicating the idea of something coming from a source, coming from somewhere. There's the first word, ek, and the second word, apa. And so we have to understand that and what the difference is. Now, if you have a, uh, well, it would, and, and, and really this doesn't come through in English translations because from is from. So whether you have an a NASB or King James Version or New King James, they're all going to read basically the same in English. Uh, but the difference is in the Greek, and then this, after we determine the reading, then we have to determine what the significance of that reading is, if anything. Now, I'm going to just give you the summary of a lot of information here. Ek is the is the the reading that is found in the uh, NA27, the critical text edition that is usually the backdrop for. Uh, for the New American Standard Version, New International Version, the ESV, and more of the modern translations, whereas on the other side we have what's called the Byzantine text or the majority text view, which is the view that that uh, the oldest manuscripts are not necessarily the best manuscripts and the uh, reading of Scripture is primarily preserved in the majority of manuscripts, hence the name majority text. Now, uh, there's Professor Dow Seminary, who's actually a classmate of mine when I went to seminary by the name of Dan Wallace, and Dan is considered to be uh, one of the premier textual critics in, uh, in among evangelicals. Now, Dan has an interesting background because in his studies at Biola before he came to Dallas, he was a majority text guy, and then when he came to Dallas, he changed his views to the critical text, and he's written a number of Articles, the, uh, theological articles, technical articles, uh, critical of the majority text view. He's sort of like a lot of uh, ex-smokers or uh, a lot of people who quit one thing and then they start attacking whatever it was that they formerly belonged to. But, but Dan's a good scholar. I disagree with him on this. I believe the majority text has the best view. And if you are interested in studying anything about textual criticism, uh, there is a course on textual criticism on the Dean Bible Ministry website that was taught three or four years ago at the Chafer Conference, and that forms the backdrop for a course in textual criticism that we have. But it helps people understand what these issues are. They get pretty abstruse and pretty technical, and a lot of times people just get lost in all of that technicality. But if you're uh, a little more interested in these issues, then you can... Um, then you can look at those uh, th- those uh, lectures. What's interesting, the reason I bring that to bear is about 10 or 12 years ago, Dan wrote a technical article on this, this uh, textual problem for Bibliotheca Sacra, which is the theological journal that Dallas Seminary publishes. And Dan looked at this, and the first reading is the reading that's in the text, in the critical text. The second reading, Apa, is the view that is in the majority of manuscripts. And Dan took the position that looking at both the external evidence of the manuscript tradition as well as internal evidence within the, uh, within uh, the the epistle of First Thessalonians itself, that his conclusion was that Apa was the superior reading. It had the greatest uh, attestation of uh, readings in the ancient world, not just some of the ancient manuscripts, but it was there was very little evidence of the Ek reading among church fathers and among others. So it was a very limited. Uh, had very limited textual evidence. And so he t- takes the position that Apa is the superior reading. Now, what in the world difference does that make since both of these uh, indicate 
that there, I mean, both, both of these are roughly synonymous, but there may be a slight difference. And in his conclusion to that, dealing with that, I'm just going to quote from Dan's article. He says, hence, all that can be argued from the variant reading in question is that if Paul, and he's a pre-trib guy, so he believes that Paul is talking about first, uh, about the pre-trib rapture later on in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to, through 5, 11. He says, if Paul is affirming a pre-trib rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 to 5.11, then the preposition apa fits quite naturally with such a doctrinal stance. On the other hand, if ek were original, it would not necessarily affirm deliverance out of the coming wrath, that is, the idea of being present in it and then being delivered from it. Apa would clearly indicate that that you don't enter into it at all. You're kept out of it completely. However, he goes on to say, for Paul elsewhere uses this same phrase, ruamai ek, where the scent seems to be delivered away from. In 2 Corinthians 1.10, the apostle states that the Lord delivered us from such a death. That is, they never actually entered into death, but they were delivered from it using the preposition ek with this same verb. So when you look at this, it's clear that this is really talking about a pre-trib rapture. The apa seems to be the superior reading and would enter that uh, and would indicate that. But we're not limited to just this one verse. First of all, you should never base theology on uh, a preposition and uh, unless you have uh, more detailed information. And then you also have to... Um, you also have to make sure that that there's corollary passages that support your support your view, and so you wouldn't hang everything just on this. You wouldn't hang anything, especially on a passage where there's a textual variant. But there are other passages, and one of the most significant of these passages is found in Revelation chapter three. Verse 9, Revelation chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And this, too, involves a little technical understanding of translation, and I've often found that this is one of the more interesting interesting passages. There have been a couple of guys that have done some technical work on this. So let me just read it to you, and then we'll get into the details. In Revelation 3, 9, John is... Uh, addressing, let's, let's just turn in our Bible there to Revelation chapter 3 verse 9 because we're going to spend a little bit of time here this morning. Um, in Revelation 3 9, uh, this is a letter to the church in Philadelphia. And this is the critique, uh, that Jesus is giving to the church of Philadelphia. He says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. But lie, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, notice there's a period at the end of that verse. And then verse 10 begins, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth." Now, there's a couple of things we have to look at here. In verse 10, we have a statement that begins with because. It states the cause of an action. Now, the way 3.10 reads, it looks as if the promise to keep you from the hour of trial is caused by their keeping the command to persevere. And that would indicate that if they fail to persevere, that they would not be kept from the hour of trial. And we have to look at this, and there's a couple of interesting things that we have to pay attention to. And one is that, that it's very likely that the punctuation here is wrong, that the causal phrase, because you have kept my command to persevere, really belongs with verse 9 and not with verse 10, that we have a case of a misplaced period. And that those, these kinds of things happen because in the, um, in the original text of Scripture, there weren't any punctuation marks. There weren't any uh, commas or periods or anything like that. In fact, they don't even put spaces between the words. They're just, it's like one long list of just 
uh, letters, and you have to break those down. And grammar is very important, so we have to look at some technical things related to, to grammar. Now, you'll see that if we move the causal statement to verse 9 instead of verse 10, that it reads very differently. Then it reads, uh, just looking at the end of verse 9, Jesus would be saying, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. If this is the correct uh, punctuation, then Jesus is stating that the reason that he has loved this congregation is because they have been obedient consistently, and then he is making an additional statement in the next, what would be the next verse, I also, in other words, in addition to um, making them know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere, in addition to that, I will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth." So the issue here is understanding this Greek word and this Greek phraseology. Hati is the Greek word, and it can be translated because, introducing a causal statement. It can be translated for, which would be introducing an explanation, although in English sometimes we use the English preposition for as a synonym for because. And then the third option is to translate hati as that. And this often is uh, used in Greek to introduce an indirect quotation. So... Uh, Hati has a broad and a dynamic range of meaning. Uh, so another thing that we need to recognize in terms of English translations is that the King James Version translators attempted to make each verse an independent sentence, even though the Greek sentence may be very long, may extend to eight, nine, or ten verses. Often the King James translators tried to break those down into as small a component as possible, and if they could, they tried to make each verse a standalone sentence. This is why they would translate 3.9 as a sentence and end it with, I have loved you. Remember, verse versification wasn't uh, entered into the uh, into the New Testament until the middle of the fifteen hundreds, uh, uh, the middle of the fifteen hundreds, somewhere around fifteen thirty, fifteen forty, somewhere in there was when you had the verses uh, set into the into the New Testament. So, into the Greek New Testament, it wasn't for another a hundred years or so, a little bit less, that you had the King James translation. So they tried to make each verse a standalone, standalone sentence. So the first option is to make verse 10 a separate statement, a separate causal statement, and the other option is to put that into verse, really what would be verse 9, and separate out the sentence in verse 10. So we have to understand what is going on here. When because begins the statement in, in English, when because begins a statement as we have in this example, it states the cause of the following clause. Okay? So that would be the cause for the statement, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. When because follows a comma, Okay, if we had a comma, to know that I've loved you, comma, because you've kept my command to persevere, when because follows a comma, it links to the previous clause. The least common use of because begins the sentence. This is called the, technically in grammar, the suspensive use of hati. Now, here's what's important. Of the 400, approximately 450 uses of the causal hati in the Greek New Testament, grammarians recognize only 12 as suspensive. Now, let me remind you that suspensive is using uh, hati at the beginning of a sentence as with a causal sense. So 12, only 12 out of 450 uses 
are recognized by grammarians as fitting that category. So the preponderance of evidence is against beginning the sentence with a a causal statement. This is extremely rare. John uses hati about 180 times in his writings, and only 11 of those times is it suspensive. So... This makes it uh, uh, very unusual that this would have started this, this, this sentence this way. Now, what we find in, if we translate it this way in verses 3, 9b uh, to 10a is a very strong statement of Jesus' love for the congregation at Philadelphia for his praise of that congregation because they have persevered in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of uh, persecution and in the midst of opposition. So this would mean that Jesus Christ is promising the church at Philadelphia two things. First of all, he's saying, I will make those who persecute you come and bow down before you because of your perseverance. Second, he says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. I also will keep you from the hour of testing. So he's really stating two things. First of all, he's going to deal with those who persecute them in one way. And second, he he adds an additional promise that he's going to keep this congregation uh, from the hour of testing. So Revelation 3.10 is important because of the role it plays in understanding the relationship of the church to the events or period known as Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation. So as a result, we have to look at this particular verse and come to understand it and see how this fits because the language here is very similar to the language in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. The language here uses the preposition ek, just as the critical text uses the preposition ek in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and therefore they are, uh, they are complementary. So we need to take a look at this. So there's three things that need to be understood as we look at verse, verse 10. Uh, first of all, the phrase, I will keep you from. What does that mean, and what is the sense of keeping from? Second thing is, what is the hour of testing, and then the third phrase is the um, relative clause that defines the hour of testing, the clause which is about to come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell upon the earth. He says, I will keep you from. So th- these are various issues, and we have to look at these verses. Um, we have this phrase Right, which is here on the screen, tereo, which is the Greek verb, and the prone, uh, the preposition ek, the preposition ek, the meaning of uh, of this phrase. So we have to look at tereo, we have to look at ek, and we have to look at the co- compound phrase tereo ek, and to see what this what this indicates. So the verb tereo, which is often translated uh, by the word keep sometimes has the has the sense of obey you keep god's commandments you obey god's commandments but it also has the sense of uh protect or uh preserve something to protect or preserve something now the context of uh 310 indicates the preservation or protection of this congregation since it is from a time of testing a time of difficulty now what we're going to see is this phrase hour of testing uh, refers to the time period that we also call Daniel's 70th week which in some sense is a more a correct term to describe the seven year period we most commonly call the great tribulation uh, the reason that I that scholars often come up with an issue is that the Great Tribulation uh, uses that term tribulation or thlipsis, and one of the uh, one of the criticisms of the pre-trib rapture position that you often hear is that we're just t- teaching some sort of escapism from the problems of life, and th- you hear this over and over again, and it's really uh, kind of uh, 
irritating that that somehow the opponents of dispensationalism and free tribulation don't quite get it, that that's not what we're teaching. I pointed this out last time, that there are many times in the Scripture that talk about the fact that believers are going to face a lot of adversity and a lot of persecution, and down through the church age, they have faced incredible persecution. And in terms of persecution that's universal and the degree of intensity, which might be a little bit worse during the... Um, during the tribulation period, when you are being tortured and imprisoned for your faith, then it doesn't really matter if there's a, if more people are the objects of that persecution, such as in the tribulation, or just a few, which is what may be experienced in smaller persecutions throughout, uh, throughout the church age. If you're the believer being persecuted, it just doesn't feel any better just to know that there's only five or six hundred who are being persecuted as opposed to, uh, three or four million that are being persecuted. There are persecutions all the time. So this isn't some kind of escape hatch that will make life easier, uh, for believers. So this term, uh, the, this term, hour of testing, really refers to Daniel's 70th week and the great tribulation, the tribulation seven-year period is a, is a, an understandable term and we all know what we're talking about. It's also, uh, indicated in the scripture as a time, the time of Jacob's trouble, indicating the focus is on, uh, on Israel. So there are different views related to the tribulation and the pre-trib rapture is the view that the uh, Lord returns in the air for his church. We will be caught up with him. This is described in First Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 and following. We will be caught up with the Lord. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, not on the ground, but in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. So uh, this is a view that is uh, uh, indicates that we do not go into the tribulation at all. And so the debate over this is really whether the Lord is going to preserve the church in the midst of the tribulation. And I think if you really understand or truly understand the intensity of the tribulation, and we've done that in our study in Revelation, how how universal it is, how extensive it is, how horrendous it is, then I don't think that anyone could could logically inferred that somehow there would be uh, millions of believers, millions of Christians on the earth, and somehow they're just going to kind of skate through. The uh, book of Revelation indicates that there will be be millions, uh, millions, tens of millions of martyrs who are slaughtered through the persecution that derives from the, from the Antichrist. So we look at this and we try to understand the meaning of this particular word. So the question is, does ek mean out from, implying that the person is in something and preserved through it, or does it refer to being removed from something without any reference to ever being in it? So I drew this diagram here to indicate the two two differences. On the left we have uh, the idea that you're in the situation, you're inside the circle and you're taken out of it, you're preserved in or through it. And this one is, uh, this, the one on the right indicates the, the nuance that you're kept out from something, but you're never ever within it. Okay, so those are the two differences. Now the predominant meaning is the, the one on the right that a position is outside uh, its object with no thought of prior existence within the object or of emergence emergence from the object itself okay now sometimes ek does indicate does mean uh what's on the left so it's not it has a broader range of meaning it primarily means you're kept from something and you're never in it but sometimes it does mean that you are uh, you are in it, and then you come out of it. And we have a couple of examples of that right here in our passage in First Thessalonians chapter one, verse ten. Okay, and this is one of the things that Dan points out, which argues from the internal evidence that apa, apa is more than likely the correct reading because we read in verse ten that we are to wait for His Son 
from heaven. And that is the preposition ek. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, and he comes from a place where he is in heaven, within heaven, and he comes out of it. And then he says, uh, describing Jesus' resurrection, whom he raised from the dead, out from the dead. He was dead, and then he is taken out from that. So in both of these cases, the circle would describe heaven, and Jesus comes from inside heaven to outside heaven. The circle describes dead. Jesus is resurrected out from the dead. And in both of those examples, he goes from inside to outside. But this is the minor understanding of Eck. Primarily, Eck has the idea of being outside and being kept from being uh, inside. And let me just give you a couple of examples of that. So what we see here is the conclusion is that the predominant meaning of Eck is a position outside its object with no thought of prior existence within the object or of emergence from the object. So if you're going to take the minority view, which is uh, just a few examples in the, in the New Testament, relatively speaking, then you have to be able to demonstrate that from context. Now, this is one of the arguments that Dan points out is that it would make more sense by the writer if he were to use ek huranas and then he would use um, then he would use his ek necron and then for parallelism use ek orges okay where all three prepositional phrases use the same preposition that would give it a certain uh, a certain parallelism and a certain sym- symmetry, and so it would be likely that if you had ek ek and then apa, that a scribe, in order to uh, make things appear more symmetrical, would be more likely to change apa to ek than to change ek to apa. Because then, if it was originally ek, why would you change it to another preposition? And when the other two prepositional phrases in the verse are the same thing. So it's more likely you have a better explanation of the change from apa to ek than a change from ek to apa. Also, in a, in a scribal, depending on just how the lines broke down on a page, it's very easy that the, very easy to understand how a scribe I would go to these other two X and pick those up and change the APA just through a scribal error from APA to X because his I just goes to the wrong, uh, wrong word and he writes that down. That's why you don't have that many manuscripts or that many quotations in the tradition that use the preposition ek there uh, in the last prepositional phrase. Now, if we look at the evidence from the broad range of, uh, of examples that we have from classical literature, in the Iliad, Liddell Scott Jones gives the example of a sentence, Therefore, will we hold ourselves aloof from the fight beyond the range of missiles? Okay, there uses the preposition ek, indicating they're not in the range, and then they pull back, but they're kept completely from going within the range of missiles. So there's an example from a, a classical work, the Iliad, where ek is has the same sense that you're that's kept from ever being within. In the Septuagint, it's used that way in a number of passages. And one of these is in Psalm 59, uh, 1 and 2. This is a miktam of David. When Saul sent men, uh, they watched the house in order to kill him. David prays, deliver me from my enemies. Defend me from those who rise against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. In each of these cases, when that's translated into Greek in the Septuagint, it uses the preposition ek, which uh, which doesn't mean to keep him safe after he's fallen under the control of those uh, those of his enemies, but to prevent him from ever uh, going uh, within the control or coming within the control of his enemies. 
In the New Testament, we have an example in Acts uh, 15, 28, and 29, where uh, I think this is Peter speaking, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than those necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. This was the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council. I think it's, uh, I misspoke a minute ago. I think this is James summarizing what they were, uh, what their, what their decision was. So you abstain from things offered to idols. That would indicate that you never did enter into that sphere of idolatry, but you were prevented from entering into that sphere of idolatry. Abstain from blood, not that you would be eating bloody meat, but that you were, uh, or raw meat, but that you were outside of that. You never did eat that from things strangled and from sexual immorality. So each of these indicate examples that we have in the chart I made here on the right side that you never enter into the sphere, but you're kept from ever being within the sphere of whatever that object, uh, object might be. In John 12:27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So the word from here, when, the, when Jesus prays and says, Save me from this hour, he, is, uh, he indicates that he doesn't want to enter into it at all. He doesn't want to into, enter into any of the suffering that's in relationship to the cross. He wants to be prevented, kept completely out of it. In John 17, 15, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he is praying for his disciples, he says to the Father, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. And there it's the Greek word, iro, to take up, to lift up, or to raise, that is, uh, to keep them from, um, uh, take them out of the world. Uh, and then he says that, uh, he should be, they should be kept from the evil one. And there we have the same Greek phraseology that we have in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, tereo ek. So Jesus is praying that they would not ever come into the uh, influence of Satan, the evil one. So the second half of this verse clearly indicates that the believer is to be protected from entering the sphere of the evil one. He's not viewed as being in Satan, but to be protected and preserved in his current position outside of Satan. So then from all of this, what we understand in First Thessalonians is that he they, they would be kept from a position outside, or excuse me, in Revelation 3.10, that they would be kept from a position outside of the hour of testing that will come upon the whole world. So that tells us, as we look at the last question we addressed earlier, that this is the worldwide conflagration of the Great Tribulation. So the hour of testing refers to that period known as the time of Daniel's 70th week, which is uh, comes upon the entire world. It is referred to in uh, Revelation uh, fourteen seventeen. I don't have that on the slide. Fourteen seven as the hour of judgment. We read in Revelation fourteen seven, fear, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So the hour, the time of testing is this hour of judgment, and they are to be kept uh, from it, from it completely. Now this is. Uh, stated in 310 as the time which is about to come upon the whole inhabited earth using this Greek word uh, mellow. Mellow indicates imminency, that it could come at any particular time. Uh, and it, it is about to come. And this letter written to the Church of Philadelphia, of course, was written uh, about uh, 1950 years ago, and the, yet the this time of testing hasn't come yet. Uh, for the Philadelphians, they had no knowledge of when uh, this would come. 
uh, historically they were kept from the hour, and by application all other believers will also be kept from the hour. And it's important because the purpose for the hour is to test those who dwell upon the earth. And what we see in Revelation is the term earth dwellers refers to the unbelievers, the kings of the earth, that are hostile to God during the seven-year tribulation period. So there is a testing, an evaluation, a judgment upon the earth dwellers during the time of the tribulation. So that clearly is referencing that the hour of trial is the period of Daniel's 70th week. It is... It is the time of testing of the earth dwellers. Again, this indicates the future period known as the, the tribulation. Now, back in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we read and to uh, that they are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, this word wrath to come is an important phrase that we ought to understand a little bit about wrath. Uh, we find a parallel to this phrase in Matthew 3.7 and Luke 3.7, where uh, John the Baptist confronts the Pharisees when they come down to evaluate his, his ministry and his claims, and he calls them the seed of Satan, actually. He says they are the brood of vipers. And the word brood means the descendants or the seed of someone. This, this ought to remind us of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the serpent will be bruised. Uh, the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So the seed of the serpent refers to those who are followers of Satan carrying out his his mission. So he is very confrontational here. Uh, John the Baptist is very confrontational here when he calls the Pharisees the, the seed of Satan. And then he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, in both these places, we need to try to understand what this wrath is. It's a future wrath. And I believe that in context of the message of the coming kingdom, that this would probably describe the judgment of the what is known as the the uh, day of the Lord that precedes the establishment of the kingdom. Passages like uh, Joel two twenty eight and following, going on into Joel three and other places in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, a time of worldwide cataclysm, immediately precedes the establishment of the of the kingdom. So uh, he says, are the uh, Pharisees trying to escape that wrath? that future tribulation period, that future time of the day of the Lord, which is Daniel's 70th week, are they trying to flee the wrath to come? Uh, Luke 21, uh, 23, uh, Jesus warns, uh, for those who are with child and for those who give suck in those days, for great distress shall be upon the earth and wrath upon this people. Again, it's talking about, the context is talking about uh, uh, judgment and this, in matter of fact, in Luke 21:23, is talking about the judgment that came in A.D. 70. So this is a wrath in time. My point in both of these examples is that they're not talking about the lake of fire. They're not talking about eternal punishment. They're talking about wrath or judgment in time. Romans 1.18 does this as well. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, present tense. It's going on right now, God's divine discipline and divine judgment on the human race at this time. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. So this is, again, judgment, divine judgment of God in present time. Uh, Romans 2.5 and Romans 2.8 uh, also talk about this, uh, the wrath of God as, as something that is stored up for those who are, uh, who are rebellious against God and refuse to turn to Him. They are, verse 5, treasuring up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath. So that's looking forward to a future time of judgment. Not the tribulation period, 
but the time of the great white throne judgment. Hebrews 4.3 refers to God's judgment in past time on his discipline upon the wilderness generation. He says, as I swore in my wrath, that is his judgment against them, they shall never enter my rest. In context, entering my rest was entering into the promised land. So that is that's very clear. Now, so we see from these examples that wrath has to do with God's judgment in time. It refers to past events, present events, as well as some future events within time. Then we have passages that specifically talk about the tribulation judgment, First uh, Thessalonians 5.9 along with First Thessalonians 1.10. First uh, Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have statements, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, related to eternal judgment. Re- uh, Romans 2.5 refers to the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 9.22 um, is not as clear, but John 3.36 is, this is a future judgment. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is eternal judgment. So wrath has a range of meaning. The primary use of wrath has to do with divine judgment in time, although there's a few examples that refer to uh, in our eternal judgment, but those are that's the minority view. Okay, when we look at this passage, as it is in the introduction here, and that it is uh, focusing on what will come up later on, and First Thessalonians is a book that is mostly concerned with, with uh, uh, prophetic events related to the church, we need to just look at the doctrine of Imminency, imminency of Christ's return. This is a really important doctrine that I don't think a lot of people teach today, and it is the historic view of the church that Jesus Christ can return at any moment. It's not the doctrine of the soon coming of Christ, but that he could come at any moment that nothing has to take place before the rapture occurs. That doesn't mean, let me try to explain this, that doesn't mean that some prophecies related to the tribulation or to Israel might not take place before the rapture, but they're not related to the rapture. They're not necessary for the rapture to take place. So imminency refers to the fact that no prophecy needs to be fulfilled or no prophecy must be fulfilled before the coming of Christ at the rapture. And what that means is if nothing has to take place before that, then there's no signs for the rapture. You can't look out and say, well, look at what's happening in the Middle East. Look at what, hap- what is happening politically in the world. Look at what technology is doing. We now have the capability to uh, tattoo everybody with some sort of, of uh, a barcode or something that would allow them to buy and sell and all this. And that's what people are doing. It's newspaper exegesis. Uh, we could go another, uh, I don't think we will, but we could go another 100, 200, 500 years before Jesus returns, because nothing has to take place for that. But what we do see is that things related to events within the tribulation seem to be set up, which seems to be that at this time there are things uh, that are going to take place in the tribulation that we seem uh, more likely to be fulfilled. But I caution everyone, this is really important. There's a wide range of people who are speculating on all kinds of eschatological fulfillment. But we have to remember that no one knows the time, no one knows the day or the hour. Satan doesn't even know the day and the hour. Uh, Satan has to be ready at every generation with his man who he could move into position to be the Antichrist because when the church goes up, then he's got to move. He's got to be ready at any given time. This means that you can look out on the political, the economic scene, the spiritual scene, and you can always pick somebody. You can always look at circumstances and say, see, we're ready right now. This could happen next week. But Satan's got to be ready. He's got to, he's moving things into position continuously so that if the church is raptured, he can move on uh, his plan to destroy Israel and to finally defeat God. 
So all of this fits into the doctrine of the imminency of Christ's return. This is a historically accurate document, a document, I mean, a, a doctrine that is taught in the early church. We have a quote here from First Clement. This is written by Clement, who is a pastor in Rome. Sometimes he's called the Bishop of Rome. Sometimes uh, Roman Catholics claim him as one of the early popes, even though uh, the papacy didn't come into existence in their sense until about the the uh, uh, around 600. And he wrote in the first century of a truth, soon and suddenly shall his will be accomplished as the scripture also bears witness saying speedily will he come and will not tarry and the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple even the holy one for whom you look he expected Jesus to return in his generation just as Peter and Paul and the other writers of the new new testament did they didn't believe anything had to happen prior to the return of Christ for the church ignatius uh, another important writer in the early part of the second century, in his epistle to the Ephesians, writes, The last times are come upon us. Let us therefore be of a reverent spirit and fear the long-suffering of God that it tend not to our condemnation. For let us either stand in awe of the wrath to come or show regard for the grace which is present displayed, uh, one of two things. So, what he is saying here is that Jesus can come at any moment. The last times are upon us, and so we need to be prepared because Jesus can come at any time and take us away from the wrath to come. And Irenaeus, who writes in the middle of the second century states, and therefore when in the end the church shall be suddenly caught up from this, it is said, quote, there shall be tribulation such as has not been seen has not been since the beginning, neither shall be. This indicates uh, probably a pretty unsophisticated but nevertheless accurate understanding that the church is caught up before the tribulation. This is in Irenaeus' writings uh, against heresies, which was written around 160 A.D. Now, just a reminder of God's prophetic panorama, we currently live in the church age. And what we see in terms of the pre-trib rapture is that Christ is going to return in the air. Uh, he, we are going to, he's going to be in the clouds. Christians are going to be caught up uh, to be with him in the air. And then there's going to be a gap that comes, a transition period. And then the Antichrist will sign a treaty with Israel. And this will begin seven years of tribulation. In the heavens, we'll have the judgment seat of Christ and then the final marriage of the Lamb. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ returns to the earth. He will destroy the Antichrist and the false prophets send them directly to the lake of fire, send the devil and his angels to, uh, to, to the abyss and they will be in chains through the thousand years of the millennium. Then they are released and when they are released, then they will lead a brief rebellion against God. Millions will join them, and God will destroy them with fire and brimstone from heaven. Then the present heavens and earth are destroyed, and a new heavens and new earth will be created, and will go into eternity. So this is what um, the attitude that Christians should have expressed in 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, Paul said, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. We should love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does imminency mean? Imminency means the at-any-moment return of Jesus Christ. It could happen right now. It could happen this afternoon. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen a 100 years from now. We don't know, but we need to be prepared because we don't know when he will show up. The term imminence, imminency in the Oxford English Dictionary means that something is hanging overhead, it's constantly ready to befall or overtake us, and it's something that is close at hand in its incidence. It's something that could be at any moment. It's impending. Uh, it is not necessarily soon or immediate, but it might be. It is something that is certain that it will occur, 
but it is uncertain when it will occur. It's not contingent upon any other events. That means that no prophecy has to be fulfilled. So you can't look at anything that's going on in the newspapers or in the world around us and say, Jesus is coming soon. Now, a lot of us believe that. I think a lot of people hope that because they just want to get out of the devil's world. But that should not be our mentality. We need to uh, not count on that. We need to live our lives as if Jesus isn't coming back uh, or might come back today, and yet we need to plan and prepare and be responsible as if Jesus isn't going to come back for uh, a thousand years. So there's no excuse for being irresponsible in planning for the future, but we need to live every day as if we're going to give account to the Lord that day or the next day. So basically, eminence means that there's no prerequisite for the return of the Lord for the church. There's no sign. We're looking for the blessed hope. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're not looking for any of these other events that that uh, will take place. We're looking for the for Jesus Christ, not for the Antichrist. The next thing that Christians are supposed to expect is the blessed hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, second thing that we learn about this in the doctrine of imminency is that it's important to understand the pre-tribulation rapture of Jesus Christ at the coming of the church. So the rapture is the resurrection of all dead the resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age before the tribulation begins. Okay, the resurrection of all dead church-age believers. Technically, the word rapture or harpazo is the word that the dead in Christ will be caught up with him, that's the word harpazo in, in the Greek, so that refers to the dead. Then we are alive and remain, uh, go to meet the Lord in the air. So the resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age so uh, before the uh, tribulation begins. Actually, I got that backwards. The, the Scripture says, uh, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the resurrection of all dead church-age believers. Then we are who alive and remain will be caught up together with him. That's harpazo. That's the rapture. It applies only to those who are alive at the time of uh, Christ's return, not to the those who have died already. They rise from the dead. Okay, let's look at the views. Here's the pre-trib rapture view. All, all believers... Go up to be with the Lord. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain caught up together with him in the clouds. That precedes the coming of the tribulation. It includes all believers. There's another view that is a minority view that is called the partial rapture view. The partial rapture view, having trouble with my slide here. There we go. Partial rapture view is the view that at the rapture, only those who are faithful, only those who are spiritual, only those who are growing uh, will be caught up to, and carnal Christians, or if you're out of fellowship maybe, then you don't get raptured. And so there are different raptures through the tribulation period as you reach a certain stage of maturity. That's not a very popular view. Uh, the other view is the mid-tribulation rapture view, and a modification of that that's popular today called the, among some people today, called the uh, pre-wrath rapture. And that pre-wrath view, uh, it's towards the end. It's sort of like the three-quarter trib view, not the mid-trib view, the last quarter being viewed as the intensification of the wrath of God. And again, it ignores passages such as the wrath of the Lamb being poured out at the very beginning in Revelation chapter 4. You have the kings of the earth hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. So the wrath of God comes from the very beginning of the uh, tribulation 
period. So the mid-trib view again is is a not a uh, it's a minority view uh, that the rapture occurs at the time of the abomination of desolation. And then we have the post-trib rapture view. The post-trib rapture view is a view that the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation forcing all believers to endure the entire seven years. Now, there are several problems with that view, and I'm not going to go into that. I just wanted to clarify this in terms of, of uh, vocabulary. What we see is a doctrine of imminency pretty much precludes all views except the pre-trib rapture. If anything has to happen before the rapture, then it's not imminent. We have to wait for the Antichrist to appear. We have to begin for the seal judgments to begin. We have to begin, we have to uh, wait on the abomination of desolation. We have to wait three or, or seven and a, uh, what would it be? Four years, four and a half years before, uh, the, uh, wrath of God appears. So, so, in all the other views, you have to wait for something else to happen before the rapture occurs. So imminency is usually rejected um, by the others. So the idea is that we are waiting for him uh, to appear today. Now, the purpose of the doctrine of imminency is to keep keep every believer in a constant state of expectancy, we're looking, we're waiting, we're watching, we're hoping for the return of Christ that we might be ready, prepared, and not be ashamed at his coming. So it keeps us in a state of watchfulness and in being prepared and making sure that we are walking in obedience to the Lord. If Christ um, didn't return until after the tribulation, after the Antichrist, after the seal and the trumpet and bowl judgments, then Christians can say, well, Jesus isn't coming back for a long time. I can wait until later to get serious about my Christian life. So it is to keep us watchful and prepared. Fifth point, believers are to look for the blessed hope. We're to look for the Savior. Uh, according to uh, Hebrews 9.28 and Titus 2.13, we are looking for him. He is the blessed hope. We are to watch for the Savior, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.6 and Luke 12.37, and we are to wait for the Savior, according to 1 Corinthians 1.7 and 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Now, the sixth thing that we need to uh, realize about imminency is that no prophecy between the baptism of the Spirit and the rapture means that the rapture is imminent. There's no necessary prophetic fulfillment. That's what we mean when we say nope. there's no prophecy fulfilled between the baptism of the Spirit and the rapture. It occur at any moment. Seventh point is that the timing of the resurrection of the church, the timing of the rapture, is completely out of our control. We can't do anything to speed it up. We can't try to hurry up a return of all the Jews to Israel. That's one of the uh, lies that's out there is Christians just want all the Jews to get back, and they want to hurry it up to get all the Jews back in the land so the rapture can occur. Nothing we do can speed up the time or the manner of the rapture that's set by God and it is not based or predicated upon anything else. Eighth point, the resurrection of the church is totally beyond our control because resurrection is the Lord's victory. First Corinthians 15.57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The ninth point is that while the rapture is imminent, the second, com- the second coming, the second advent, is not. There are many signs for the second advent. That's what uh, the apostles are asking at the beginning of Matthew 24. What are the signs of your coming? There are no signs related to the rapture. There are only signs related to the second coming. The tenth point is that the rapture could have occurred at the time of James or Paul or even Clement, as we read in the quote earlier, because no prophecy had to be fulfilled before the resurrection of the church occurs. Now, what happens is a distortion of imminency. When people don't understand this, a distortion of imminency of the rapture results in instability. Christians are always looking and speculating, wondering when the rapture is going to occur. And so we are warned by James in James 5, 7 to 8, that we are to just patiently wait for the coming of the Lord. 
These are key passages. In James 5, 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, soil being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And that word near indicates the doctrine of imminency. So, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 indicates the pre-trib rapture, relies upon the doctrine or assumes a doctrine of imminency, and sets us up for what will be discussed in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things today, to be reminded that you are coming soon. It could happen at any moment, and we need to be motivated to be prepared, to be ready, to make sure that we are spiritually prepared for the end game And that will be taking us to heaven, the judgment seat of Christ, and preparation for our future role to uh, rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you challenge us with what we studied this evening. In Christ's name, amen.